last year I was here and gave a day-long presentation on emptiness. And at the end of the day, the audience seemed burned out, I felt burned out, and my fear was that everybody went away and forgot all the main points. So tonight we're going to revisit emptiness <laughs> and figure out what was of value last year, or what's, what, I, what I felt was of value from the talk last year. Um, so tonight's talk, I guess, for whoever puts this out on Audio Dharma is Emptiness Revisited. A couple of years back, I had a visitor at the monastery, <coughs> someone who's been around the Dharma scene for quite a while, and she said, you know, I know that Nagarjuna and the Mahayanas teach a lot about emptiness. Did the Buddha ever talk about emptiness? And I figured it's time to dig back and talk about what the Buddha said about emptiness. Um, actually, he said quite a lot, but it's not like what you've probably heard of emptiness meaning. Um, if you've heard any of the Mahayana teachings, emptiness deals with the nature of things. Do things have any inherent existence or not, and the emptiness teaching for them is that they have no inherent existence. Um, now that's things. The question is, well, what does emptiness have to do with us? You know, if you were attached to this glass, would you be attached to this glass because it has an inherent existence, or would you be attached to the glass because it can hold water that you can drink? The question of inherent existence really doesn't have much to do with why we're attached to things. Um, and But if you look at the Buddhist teachings on on emptiness, you find that it's very directly related to our attachments. But to understand the role that they play in Buddhist wisdom, it's also good to think about what the Buddha himself talked about wisdom. What, what makes something wise? Why is some knowledge wise and other knowledge not wise? And for all the sophistication of his teachings, his test for wisdom is very simple. It says, if, if you can talk yourself out of doing something that you know is, that you'd like to do but you know is harmful, or if you can talk yourself into doing something that you don't like to do but you know is beneficial, that's wisdom. It's very simple, down to earth, no, nothing very, <laughs> the kind of stuff you, you try to teach your children. Um, and so the question is, what does wisdom have to do with talking us into doing things that we know will be of benefit and to talking us out of things we um, know will be of harm? And it's related to the Buddha's teachings to his, ch his son, Rahula. I don't know if Gil has been concentrating on that topic at all this last this last spring. Not this spring, okay. <coughs> There's a principle in journalism that if you want to really get a good interview, you send someone who asks, looks a little dumb and asks dumb questions, and you really get the person to reveal themselves because you, you look kind of quizzical and you don't understand, and then they have to back up and get, get really basic and expose all of their assumptions and all their backgrounds. And so it's, I always find it useful when looking at the Buddha's teachings to look at how he taught children. And this is a prime example. Um, the story goes that he came to visit Rahula in one evening. This is Rahula about this time was seven years old. He was a little novice monk. And Rula, seeing the Buddha coming in the distance, sets out some water for washing his feet. And the Buddha comes, washes his feet. And he leaves a little bit of water remaining in the dipper. And he says, you see this little bit of water remaining in the dipper? And Rula says, yes. And the Buddha says, that's how little, little goodness there is in a person who tells a deliberate lie and doesn't feel embarrassed about it. You get the feeling Rahula probably told a lie that day. <laughs> Suddenly feeling very embarrassed. And then the Buddha takes the water and throws it away. See how that water is thrown away? Rahula says, yes. And the Buddha says, that's what happens to the goodness of a person who tells a deliberate lie and doesn't feel ashamed. It gets thrown away just like that. 
Then he turns it upside down. See, see how the stripper is upside down? Yes, sir. Okay, this is what happens to the goodness of a person who tells a deliberate lie and feels no embarrassment. Your goodness gets turned upside down. And then he turns it up again. See, see how hollow it is? And you get the point. <coughs> and so having established the principle of truthfulness as kind of the essential virtue in the practice, the Buddha goes on to tell Rahula to reflect on his actions in the same way that he'd reflect in his face in a mirror. He says, if you plan to do something, either in a physical action or verbal action or mental action, ask yourself, this action I'm going to do, what are the results going to be? Is it going to be harmful or not? Is it, will it harm myself? Will it harm other people? And if you foresee any harm that would come from the action, you don't do it. If you don't foresee any harm, go ahead and do it. While you're doing it, he says, reflect on the results that are already coming from the action. And if you see any harm that you didn't expect coming up, stop. If you don't see any harm, continue. Once you've done the action, then he says, reflect on the long-term results. And if you saw any unexpected harm that came, then go talk it over with someone else who's on the path. And then resolve that you're not going to repeat that mistake again. If, however, you see no harmful results, then take joy in the fact that you're on the path and your, your, your path is progressing. And the Buddha goes on to say that everyone in the past who've purified their actions did it in just this way. All those in the future who will purify their actions do it in just this way. Will do it in just this way. Those, all those who do it the present do it in just this way. Kind of, it's a universal principle, universal practice. I was presenting this teaching a couple months back in Santa Fe, and there was a psychologist there who said, you know, if if my patients had had this kind of instruction from their parents when they were young, I wouldn't have any patients. Because <laughs> the focus is not on so much whether you're a good person or a bad person because you think of doing something bad. It focuses on the action. Gets the person out of the way. And you look at the actions just in and of themselves in terms of cause and effect. Um, teaches you to be honest about what your intentions are. It teaches you also not to be too ashamed to admit your mistakes. When you're honest enough, you have the integrity to admit, yes, I did make that mistake. It's not the case. The parent asks you, what happened to this? And you say, well, it was already broken when I lay down on it. <laughs> yes, I broke it. Okay. And then you're not ashamed to talk it over. <clears throat> and so it develops, and, and also the principle of looking at your actions in terms of harm or not harm. Basically, it teaches compassion. You're not trying to harm yourself. You don't want to harm yourself. You don't want to harm other people. So it teaches a lot of good values, and it also teaches you to appreciate the power of your actions. In fact, the more you are honest about your intentions and have the integrity to admit mistakes, the more you begin to see that you, your actions do have power in your life. The things you do, the things you say, the things you think really do shape your life. And secondly, if you don't like the way you're shaping your life, you can change it. The more honest you are about the mistakes you've made, then the more power you have to change. So it teaches a lot of healthy attitudes. You might call this, instead of self-purification, it's action purification. It focuses on the actions, not on, not on your value as a person. In fact, it emphasizes your value as a person who would be ashamed to do something harmful. This is healthy shame, as opposed to unhealthy shame, which is focused on yourself. I'm a horrible person for having done that. It's The action is something bad. Okay, I don't want to do that again. Okay, so this particular principle of looking at your actions in terms of your intentions, which are the cause, and then the results in terms of harm, and learning the honesty and integrity to 
admit mistakes, learn from them, and then the, the ability to make the decision not to try to repeat that mistake again. This is how you develop wisdom in life. You begin to get better and better and better at not weighing yourself down with neurotic ideas or weighing yourself down with unhealthy psychological attitudes. And you can look at an action and see, okay, this this action is something I don't want to do. I've done it. I've made this make mistake before. I don't want to repeat it again. And you get better and better at learning how not to repeat those mistakes. So this is the Buddha's basic framework for how you develop wisdom in your daily life. Now notice he said it doesn't, um, it's not confined just to your physical actions sort of out in the world or your verbal actions. The Buddha said it also applies to actions in your mind. The thoughts you have, the intentions you have. When you decide to think about something, you want to apply this principle as well. And this is how it, this particular teaching then begins to segue into the Buddha's teachings on emptiness. The Buddha actually has three different meanings of emptiness in his teachings. Um, <clears throat> one is emptiness as, as your approach to, to meditation, how you approach the practice of meditation. The second one is emptiness as a quality of things. Now this may sound metaphysical, but when we get to it, we'll see that it's not. And then the third, emptiness as a state of concentration. The first two are the most important. And <coughs> the first one is emptiness as an approach to meditation. There's a sutta where Ananda comes to the Buddha and he says, I think I've heard it from the Buddha that you said that your meditative dwelling is a dwelling of emptiness. Did I hear this rightly? And the Buddha said, yes. And then the Buddha explains. The word dwelling in Pali can also be used to mean approach or attitude. And, that, and the, what the Buddha describes is not only where his mind stays, but also the approach you use in getting it to stay there. <coughs> They're staying in a, in a monastery, which used to be an old palace. And the, the owners of the palace decided to give it up and let the monks stay there. And he says, now, now while we're here in this old palace, all of the disturbances that used to be here because of, as he said, men, women, money, horses, and elephants. <laughs> you can imagine what he'd say about modern life. Okay. Okay. These disturbances are not here at the moment, and there's just the disturbance of the harmony of the, the monastic sangha, practicing meditation. <clears throat> it's, it's a minimal amount of disturbance, it's not too much. And he says in the same way, you get a monk to leave the home life, get out of the village, and go into the forest. And just reflect on the fact that he's now in the forest and get his mind to focus on that perception of, actually the perception they use in term they use in the Pali, wilderness, that you're in the wilderness and just focus on the idea of being in the wilderness. And while you're there, he says, allow yourself to settle into that and really enjoy the fact that you're out here in the wilds and you're away from all the disturbances of being in, in the household life. I had an experience several years back I was climbing Angel's Landing in Zion National Park. And it was a warm day, and so I had taken off my robe and tied it as a sash around my waist. And because the slick rock was slippery, um, and monks wear only sandals, and the sandals are pretty useless in a case like that, took off my sandals, put them in a pocket, so I was barefoot going up the, the path. And coming down the path, we could hear somebody, a whole group of people from about a hundred meters away. And within five minutes, you knew everything you wanted to know about these people. Um, <laughs> They were talking shop. They worked in an ad and modeling agency in Los Angeles, and they were talking about the actors and actresses and models that they were, they were working with. And they come around the corner, and they see me. And they say, look, look, doesn't it feel like we're in Tibet? 
Get a picture. <laughs> oh, make sure you get his bare feet. He's got bare feet. See his bare feet? Get his bare feet. It was a point like that. I wish I had an agent. <laughs> but the point, the point here is that you can be in the wilderness and not really be in the wilderness. You're still in your Los Angeles modeling agency. Uh-oh. But if you allow your mind to be in the wilderness as well, it's an entirely different kind of experience. All the issues, especially if you've been in, out in the wilds for a couple of weeks, you know, all the things that at home that used to bother you and that work used to bother you just seem so far away. And the Buddha said, this is how you get into a meditative state. It's just put yourself in a place where you are far away from your normal concerns. Allow yourself to indulge in that reflection that you're now in the wilderness. Really enjoy it. He said, then reflect on it. And reflect on the fact that while I'm here with this particular perception of wilderness, household concerns don't concern me anymore. Issues back in my home village don't concern me anymore. And then the Buddha uses this as as an example to say, once you get further and further into meditation, you do the same thing with each state of concentration you get into. And they they describe the monk going through progressive states of concentration. First, uh, concentration based on earth. You just think of the earthness of all things. He said this is even a more refined perception than wilderness, because even with a perception of wilderness, you know, there's the idea there may be tigers out there, there may be bears, um, there may be bobcats, mountain lions, rattlesnakes, all these things, all these dangers could happen to you. But if you think about everything just being earth, that changes the perception. Your body is earth, the things around you are earth, the trees are earth, and it just spreads out in all directions. And he says, you just think about the earthness without any of the particular details about what the earth is, in, in like whether it's a tree earth or it's a uh, ravine earth or a hill earth. It's just earthness all around. And that perception, as you hold on to it, drops away a lot of the concerns about being a person in the wilderness. You're just, body is earth, the things around you are earth. And again, he says, allow yourself to indulge in that perception, really enjoy it, settle into it. You can make it as a basis for concentration. And then, once you've got thoroughly established there, then you step back and reflect on it and say, say what disturbances are here? Now, this is where the emptiness issue becomes, comes in, because he's defining emptiness in terms of empty of disturbance. Okay, this particular mode of perception is empty of the disturbance that would come with the perception of village. It's empty of the disturbances that would come with the perception of wilderness. And there's only left this one modicum of, of disturbance, and that's the singleness of mind that's based on this perception of Earth. So you're looking at the concentration, not with the idea of saying, I am one with earth, but you just realize, okay, this is a perception which sort of gets rid of lots of disturbances. It in and of itself still is a modicum of, percep- of disturbance because you've got to maintain it in mind. The act of maintaining the perception is a, a certain amount of stress, certain amount of disturbance. And so he says, what, what constitutes the emptiness here, or the, the purity of the emptiness, is that you look at the state of mind you have, and you don't take away any, you don't deny the disturbances that are there, and you don't add any unnecessary disturbances on top of it. You just see it for what's there in terms of, okay, empty of disturbance or presence of disturbance. That's it. Just as for the disturbance, there is this. You don't add anything more onto it, like I'm a bad person for this disturbance or whatever. It's just, okay, there is this. You're taking a very honest look at your meditation in terms of action, cause, and effect. Now, you may begin to see the parallels here with the instructions to Rahula. Okay, the em- concentration is an action that has a certain effect on the mind. And instead of, in this case, t- talk- talking about harm, the Buddha talks about disturbance. 
you could translate this as stress. And what you're trying to do as you're meditating is to get less and less and less stress in the mind. And you realize that stress is not coming from things outside, it's coming from your perceptions. It's what you're doing. Now you see the parallels with Rahula? You're looking at things in terms of the power of your actions. From there he has you go to the state of the infinitude of space. And this starts getting into the formless states, which for many of us seem very, very foreign and far away. But I mean, there is space in this room. There's space penetrating the atoms in your body. And you know, if you can get the meditation so that your, your breathing is still enough so that the breath stops, and what you have left is a sensation of the body being composed of kind of a vague shape of mist, little dots of, of sensation. If you stay with that long enough, then you focus on the space between the dots. And you realize it's infinite. It spreads throughout the room. It spreads through everybody. It goes all the way. There's no, there's, there's no end to it. And you can put your mind in that perception. Just focus on that idea, that mental label. Space penetrating everything. It's not that far away. It's right here. It's simply learning to refine your perception. And you, and as again, the Buddha says, allow yourself to settle in there, indulge in it, enjoy it. You're meant to like this. Because it, it's, it's really cool. Space. Everything is space. You walk through space and um, you look at somebody, somebody who really disturbs you, you think, space. There's nothing but space <laughs> in that person. <laughs> And so then he has the meditator follow the same process. Look for the amount of disturbance that's no longer there. The disturbance that came from having earth as your perception or anything solid now is gone. Then the amount of disturbance from being in wilderness or being in the village, that's gone too. Just, there's just left this amount of disturbance that the mind has to keep that label of space in mind all the time. And so again, you look at the disturbance for what it is. You don't add anything onto it. You don't deny that it's there. And this is, as the Buddha said, this is an empty entry into emptiness that's pure and undistorted. I.e., it builds on the same principles of one not wanting to harm the mind, not adding any unnecessary stress, and two, being honest and having the integrity to admit, okay, what's there and what's not there as a result of your actions. And the Buddha then has the monk go through all the states of concentration until you finally get to the most refined concentration, which he says is a concentration of mind which doesn't even have an object. It's just totally centered and still. But you can't say that it's focused on anything as an object. And then you indulge in that and get to settle in, and then you reflect on that too, and you realize that too is fabricated. You see that there's a certain amount of disturbance that's still there. Then you drop the fabrication, and then that's when you, the mind opens up to the deathless. So you go through this stage by stage by stage, looking at these states of, of mind, not in terms of metaphysical absolutes, because it's so easy when you get into some of these formless states. There's nothing but knowing, and there's nothing but space. You can say, this is it, the ground of being. Wow, I'm here. And that's adding new stuff on in terms of what's actually there. He says, when you look at what's actually there, there's the perception that causes the state of concentration. And then there's that certain amount of disturbance caused that by that perception, even though other disturbances have gone away. And so you get finally to the point where the mind is not creating any disturbance at all. And that's all right, not creating any stress for itself at all. And that, he says, is the ultimate emptiness. Says, this is the emptiness that's unsurpassed. Nobody will ever be able to surpass this, he said. So you see in this, this application of the principles of Rahula, as you go through your meditative practice, always look at what you're doing. 
If you get the mind into a nice state based on any kind of perception of the body or of the breath, learn to enjoy it. Because it is better than not having the mind concentrated. Learn to enjoy it, settle in. And once you're thoroughly settled there, then you can reflect on it. Okay, what stress is this causing? Notice, okay, it's based on your perception. Can you create a more refined perception to move it to a state of lesser stress? So just as Rahula was taught to learn to minimize the harm of his actions, you're minimizing the stress in your concentration by looking at it in terms of actions. It's based on the same kind of principle that one, you're operating out of compassion. You don't want to cause harm for yourself. Not for selfish reasons, because if you know that if you're not causing harm for yourself, you're less likely to cause it for other people. And then secondly, the principle of integrity and honesty. That you look at what you're doing, really admit what you're doing. If there's any harm or any disturbance that you're still causing, do your best to not continue it and to refine, refine your actions. And so in this way, the Buddhist wisdom of emptiness is not sort of, a, sort of a metaphysical or a speculative wisdom. It's more pragmatic. We would also say that it's more moral. It deals with issues of compassion and integrity. Not whether you can give this, the right explanation of emptiness or define the, the object of negation or deal in logic. It's more you know, looking at your actions, seeing where they're harmful, stressful, and then learning how to behave in a way that's less harmful and less stressful. So this, the principles of how you develop wisdom don't just apply just in the outside world. They begin to be taken into the mind. So that's one of the meanings of emptiness in the Pali Canon, is empty of disturbance. There's another sutta where the Buddha is approached by Ananda, and Ananda asks him, I've heard that the world is empty. In what way is the world empty? And then the Buddha defines the world. And it's interesting how he defines the world. He defines it in terms of your six senses, your experience of the world. Again, he's not talking about the world out there. He's talking about okay, what you see, what you hear, what you, what you, what you sense, what your consciousness receives life is like, is that all these things are empty of self or anything that pertains to self. There's nothing there that's really you or nothing there that's really yours. Now how does this apply in the practice? It's, in, it's important to notice what, when the Buddha talks about self, he, he was once asked point blank, is there a self? He refused to answer. Is there no self? He refused to answer. The person who asked him the question got upset got disgusted, but got up and left. And so Ananda got up distressed. He said, why didn't you answer the question? And the Buddha says, no matter how you answer that question, you get into wrong view. Now this may be a surprise. We hear the teaching on not-self, and we think the Buddha is saying there is no self. He never says that. In fact, he even says that to say that there is no self is a wrong view. So what does this not-self teaching mean? It's important to look at how he talks about how people create a sense of self. He says there is this process of I-making and my-making. We create our sense of self in the, in the course of trying to control pleasure and pain. Pleasure for feelings come and we try to control them. So we do what we can. We identify our power. So can you control this? Okay, I can control that. And try to move it into the direction we want to. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And then there's also the, so the things that you can control either become you or the things or tool. You see them as tools that belong to you that you can, you can maintain some control over. And it's out of this that we create our sense of I and we create our sense of mind. And then there's the, the sense of the I and mind that experiences the pleasure that we want. Now the problem is you set up this experiencer and it's not only experiencing pleasure, it's also experiencing pain. Because we're not all that skillful in managing pleasure and pain. 
But if you reflect a minute, you realize, okay, this sense of self that we have is an activity. It's something that we do. It's a mental activity. And in that, in, in that way, it falls under the teachings of to Rahula as well. You look at this sense of I and mind that you create. And there's not just one sense of I and mind. We have lots of eyes, lots of minds. There's the eye of the person who goes down to work. There's the eye of the person driving the car. There's the eye of the person who wants a you know, really nice meal tonight after the talk. We have lots of different eyes and we try to juggle them in the course of the day. And if you look at them as activities, then you can t- treat them under the teaching, the pattern of the teachings to Rahula. In other words, you look, where does this sense of I, where is it useful, where, does it, where is it actually helpful, and then where is it harmful? And the Buddha doesn't say that all the sense of I is always harmful. In, a rel- in lots, of re- lots of situations, it's good to have a, a strong sense of I that's responsible, that's willing to put up with you know, immediate discomfort or immediate difficulties for the sake of long-term pleasure or long-term happiness. We're willing to over, you know, deal with what we call um, delayed gratification. That I in mind is a good one. You want to work on that one. And the Buddha gives teachings on how to develop it through the practice of generosity, the practice of virtue, and basic practice of meditation. You read his meditation instructions and the word I in there occurs quite a lot. I do this, I do that. Um, there is this feeling in me, there is this feeling in me, um, there is this skillful feeling in me, there is an unskillful feeling in me. If it's unskillful, I want to do what I can to get rid of it. If it's skillful, I want to do what I can to maintain it. So the sense of I is still very useful in the beginning stages of concentration. It's only when you get to the point where you realize that it's taken you as far as you can go. That's when you start taking apart even the most refined or responsible sense of I. And that's where the teaching of not-self comes in. So again, it's this principle of seeing things in terms of actions, noticing where your actions are causing harm, where they're not causing harm, and focusing on doing the things that will not cause harm, dropping the things that do cause harm. And so by seeing things as empty of self like this, you get into your meditation. Um, what, what do you have left? And the Buddha says when a person is meditating, gets to a point where they're not adding the sense of self on top of it, all they see is that there's stress arising, stress passing away. That's it. Well, that gets you into emptiness as a meditative approach. You're looking at your state of mind in terms of the stress that's arising, the stress that's passing away. And then you start dealing with that directly. So this gets you back into that first kind of emptiness as your approach to meditation. And then you try to refine the meditation until you get to the point where there's no more disturbance that you're creating at all. That's the second meaning of emptiness. The third is an extension of the second meaning. The Buddha says there is a state of concentration you can get into by just going out and sitting under a tree and saying, okay, everything is empty of self. Sight, sounds, smells, taste, tactile sensations are all empty of self. And it's interesting, he says, that this doesn't lead to insight meditation, it leads to liberation. He says it leads to a state of concentration. The mind gets into a state that they call nothingness. There's nothing, nothing. That, that becomes the mind's perception. Based on this perception, he says, you feel a great sense of equanimity. Now you can get attached to the equanimity. And if you're attached, that's, how, that's, how, that's as far as you go. But if you begin to see that the way you relate to the equanimity is in and of itself a, an activity, then you sense yourself, okay, here, here even my attachment to the equanimity, that's an activity, and you then, then regard it in terms of how much stress there is in being attached to equanimity. And that gets you back into that first 
approach to meditation, the emptiness as an approach to meditation, where you're simply looking at things in terms of the presence or absence of stress, presence or absence of disturbance, and then what you do what you can to minimize that disturbance. So all the forms of emptiness eventually settle down back on that first one. They're meant to lead you to a state where you're looking at things simply in terms of basically the Four Noble Truths. You see stress and you see what's causing the stress. And then you do what you can to put an end to it, and then you get to the point where you finally have put an end to it. What's, what I think is really special here is that in all of these cases, it's the, the kind of knowledge that we're looking for is not the knowledge of someone who's good at logic or good at thinking things in an abstract way. It's more the knowledge that comes from really being honest about what you're doing, having the integrity to admit mistakes, and having the compassion not to want to harm anybody, yourself or other people. So th- and this, this kind of this knowledge, you might call it moral knowledge. I don't know if morality is a good word in this community. I think Gil has made it a good word, right? Yes, okay. It's not an abstract or speculative knowledge. It's more of a moral... It's a kind of knowledge that comes from having integrity, that comes from being honest, and that comes from having compassion. So it's not just an abstract kind of thing we're trying to work on here. And this, I think, is where the, the, the Buddhist teachings on emptiness are really special. You compare it to later teachings on emptiness, which tend to be more abstract and speculative. And I must admit, I always got the question, you know, regardless of whether this glass has inherent existence or not, I'm still going to use it. And if I really like it, I can still very easily get attached to it. You know? Even though I know that it's impermanent, it's going, and we know it's going to break someday, but in the meantime, I'm going to hold on, Right? But if you begin to look at, okay, my holding on is causing stress for myself, okay, then I can look, instead of looking at the glass, I look at my own actions. This is where the Buddhist teachings always come back to us. What are you doing right now? Is it causing stress? Is it causing harm? Can you act in a different way that causes less stress, less harm? And that's, that's the beginning, or that's the nature of the Buddhist kind of wisdom that the Buddha is teaching. So that's the wisdom of emptiness in the early teachings. So these are the basic points I'd like to make. One is that the type of knowledge we're looking for here is a knowledge that's based on integrity, it's based on honesty, it's based on compassion. It comes from realizing the power of our actions, both external actions and internal actions, to shape our experience. And, to, and, and then how to learn to look at them in such a way that we can refine them to the point where we're no longer causing any stress or harm, either for ourselves or for other people. And so in this way, the teachings on emptiness, because there is no radical distinction in the early teachings between conventional truths or absolute truths, it's the same process all the way through. The way the Buddha teaches emptiness is to, you can remind yourself in the course of the day that the, excuse me, the same kind of knowledge or the same kind of integrity that gets you up early in the morning to meditate on a dark, cold day is a useful knowledge, it's a useful skill, because that kind of skill is going to take you all the way to awakening. The same way the kind of knowledge that it, or wisdom that enables you not to give in to the, impul- the impulse to have a drink on a lazy afternoon. That's useful knowledge, that's useful skill, because it's the same sort of skill and knowledge that will take you all the way to awakening. It's not the case that morality is just for conventional people, but you know, wisdom is for the people who are above morality. You learn the lessons of having a moral approach to life, with the integrity and the compassion that you want to not be harmful. And the, excuse me, the compassion not to cause harm, the integrity to admit a mistake when you've made it. And that kind of knowledge, that kind of skill will take you all the way. There's no, there's no dividing line between absolute and relative. It's all 
it's all the same approach. So those are the points that I wanted to make about emptiness tonight. I was wondering if you had any questions. Yes? I've got a traveling mic. Is it possible that one could be doing something presently, you know, um, that is very stressful for them, but in the long run is beneficial to them as a person? Yes. And mm-hmm. in, in, in that case, when, when you're talking about external activities, we're not talking about harm. We're not talking about stress, we're talking about harm. I mean, is this really harming you as a person? And the fact that, well, my teacher used to do this, you know, we'd, he'd have us working all day and then at the end of the day he'd say, okay, tonight we're going to meditate all night. I said, wait a minute, huh. we've been working all day, I need some rest. I can't do that. And the first time I was stupid enough to say that I couldn't do it, he said, you know, is it going to kill you? <laughs> I said, well, no. He said, then you can do it. <laughs> and I found out, yes, you can do it. It wasn't easy, but you can. So even though it may be, you know, cause, you know, it takes a lot of effort, in the long term it's a good thing. And that's what you're looking for is the long term results. In fact, that's another place where he defines wisdom is the, the question, what, when I do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness. The realization that there's, there is short-term happiness, but it's not worth bothering. But it's the long-term that you're looking for. Question? Where's the other mic? There's a nearby mic. My notes suggest that you were going to say some more about the state of concentration as it relates to emptiness. That state of concentration, he actually calls a a state of emptiness. He calls it the emptiness liberation of mind, which is a liberation of mind is another, it's a synonym for concentration. He says you can get there, but then you've got to get beyond there, otherwise you get stuck. It's, it's kind of a footnote to the talk, but I think it's an important one because many times we think you get to a state where, okay, there is no, you know, uh, there's no self in, any of these things, or these things have no self, or they're not, nothing pertaining to self, and you think that any state of sort of breakthrough that comes on, on as a result of that must be a state of insight. And the says, not necessarily, it's not necessarily the case. You just get into a state of concentration yeah. with that perception. Thank you. Yes. So in my um, own meditation practice, I've experienced times when the mind will kind of naturally incline to more and more subtlety in the experience. I don't have to do anything. It's simply um, in experiencing a certain set of vibration, it naturally will find a more subtle vibration and rest there, and then it just gets quieter and quieter. But it doesn't feel like something that I'm doing, like I'm, I'm not trying to... Uh, to see how to let go or see how to, to move through it. And it seems to me almost like the, the process of reflecting again, what, what do I need to let go of or where is the stress, that that itself is a stress. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, there are times when it's hard and you have to reflect a lot. And other times when it, seem, when it just seems to be, so it's, it's our natural response to look for the comfort wherever it is. You say, okay, this, this is stressful, and it's, it's a very quick kind of internal dialogue. So there is still an element of intention there to, to drop and move on, drop and move on. 
and it's for all of us the, our sense of self gets strongest when we run up against an obstacle and our sense of our realization of, of, of what effort we have to put into things and how we have to really be clear about our intention is strongest when there is an obstacle now there are times when it just seems very natural and at that point it all becomes so easy that you don't even notice it but it's still there You're saying that the intention is still to that it's just it's, it's more um, it's more subtle more subtle right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so um, the the time when you actually look to see where there is some something you can let go of is when there's a feeling of an obstacle mm-hmm. okay. and sometimes that obstacle may simply be the sense of okay I've gone as far as I can go. We all, it's, it's so automatic in most meditators. So, okay, I've attained something. What next? What next? You know? And you, you get to the what next and finally, well, okay, what's next? But there doesn't seem to be any next. It's just this. And the Buddha says, okay, back up and then learn to indulge in that, learn to appreciate it, because the more you stay there, the more you begin to see exactly what you're doing, where the clinging still is. We, we tend to think of the word clinging as meaning there's, some, there's a thing there that you're holding on to. But if you learn to look at everything in terms of activities, you realize that clinging is an action that you keep repeating over and over and over again. You keep doing this over and over and over and over and over again, and you don't see it. So in order to see it clearly, you just keep doing it over and over and over and over and over again, you know, continually. <laughs> and eventually you say, oh yeah, there is still that element of activity, because there's going to be a slight wavering or a slight inconstancy that will allow you to see, okay, that's not just, this is not the ground of being. Activity. Mm-hmm. Way in the back. For me, <clears throat> something that happens is a little bit slightly different, so a slightly different take on what Andrea just asked is um, on long retreats, and I'm coming up on one, <laughs> um, mine gets more and more and more settled, um, not effortlessly, but with effort, and then suddenly I'm at the doorstep of something significant. I can peek in the doorway and see something significant, and I lose all my equanimity. It's just, I mean, it's the worst ever. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's what my mind would be on the least mindful day. And this has happened time and again. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to deal with that. Okay. Sometimes the retreat, this happened early enough on the retreat, it sort of settled, and sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. You say lose equanimity, does it, because you're getting excited because you want to go through the door? <coughs> Okay, well, just remember yourself. Remember, okay, that was a mistake I made at the last retreat. If the door is going to open, I don't have to do anything. It's going, it'll open. Because a lot of these states, you give them enough time, then it'll, it'll sort of ripen properly. And if you're too hurried to go into the next door, there's the, the simile of the foolish, inexperienced cow. Do you know that one? The, the cow is on the side of the hillside, and she's got grass and she's got water on her little patch there, but she looks over on the other hillside, she sees there's other grass and there's other water on the other hillside. And she wants to, hmm, 
It looks interesting. What's the grass like over there? What's the water like over there? But then the Buddha says, but because she has the foolish experienced cow, she doesn't know how to get over there. And so she walks down in the ravine and then gets stuck in the ravine and can't get up to the other one and can't get back to where she was. Um, they don't continue the, the image, but I've noticed in my own meditation, in a lot of ways, the way to get to the better grass and water is just stay where you are and it's going to grow where you are. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe I need to go to the doorway a few times. It's also scary sometimes, yeah. really scary. <coughs> so maybe more than one repetition is needed right, right, for right. some of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Wait. First example he gave us, he talked about how once you get to a certain stage, you get to a certain stage of concentration. And then you should drop the fabrication. I wondered if you could say more. That's about that's that. talking at the very high level of meditation. Yeah, but theoretically, what do you do to drop the fabrication? Because all along, that's what we're doing, fabricating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the hardest thing to explain. But what happens is the mind usually finds that it, if it drops one fabrication, it goes to a more refined one, and then to a more refined one, and then you finally get to the point that you realize that no matter what you do, it's still going to be causing stress. And the reason you see that is because the mind has become more refined. And there simply comes to that point where you say, it's fighting an impulse that we've been following all along, which is the what next, what next, what next impulse. It's okay, there doesn't have to be a what next. And because you're cornered, you can, do, you can drop it. And it's just that realization that no matter what direction you go, it's going to cause stress because through the fabrication. So you just learn how to drop. Um, and that fabrication and the existence or non-existence of stress is a correlation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wherever, wherever there's fabrication, there's ignorance, and wherever there's ignorance, there's stress. Nine o'clock. Okay. <laughs> I don't turn into a pumpkin, but we're supposed to end at nine o'clock. So, <laughs> so thank you for your attention. As Jim said, Saturday we'll have a class on breath meditation, and Sunday we'll have a surprise talk, something new. <laughs> Thanks a lot.